I am here with Rebecca Platel from the Cary Institute, and I'm very eager to hear both about Rebecca and the Cary Institute. So could you start just by giving us a sense of the mission of the Institute? Sure. So, so most people know the Cary Institute as its sort of predecessor, the Rensselaerville Institute, and um, there's a, there's a long history there that's really interesting, and I won't try to even begin to explain, <laughs> explain it today. But um, the transition happened in 2012, and became it became the Cary Institute for Global Good, with a mission to contribute to a strong, just, and educated society. So very broad, and lots of opportunity to do a lot of different things. Um, uh, but with sort of the caveat that we use the campus to convene people and kind of, you know, discuss or address kind of the most most pressing issues of the day. So, and that does sort of harken back to the original sort of purpose of, of why the campus um, exists. But How yeah. lovely to work at a place with such lofty goals. <laughs> yes. So what is your own, and I know you said your role is in the process of shifting at this very moment, but if you could just... Tell us what your role is there. Sure. So I am a program manager, um, and the name of the program is Sustainable Communities. Um, and it's sort of a, it is in, I guess, in, in evolution as so much as, um, you know, my role is shifting. It's sort of, we're, we're, after spending a few years exploring kind of what we can do, we're sort of honing in on some more, kind of more targeted um programmatic focus, I guess. Okay, well, I want to hear about what those programs are. The reason I originally called Rebecca is something I think she said she's stepping away from a little now, but I'd still like to touch on it. Sure. If you could just tell us about the farm survey. Yeah, so when I started, and I still sort of, you know, in in my role there, I really think it's important that the Cary Institute has a, you know, makes, has a local connection. There is, there's some, there's a relevant, you know, component um, pe- people locally can relate to what we're doing in some way. Um, and that can be hard to do, uh, <laughs> depending on, um, you know, the nature of the program or sort of the target audience. But I don't know, I, that's kind of something I'm, I'm committed to one way or another. Um, and we've done that in other, other areas of the Sustainable Communities Program. But so the Hill and Mountain Farming Project, um, which that the survey is a part of. So we... <laughs> When I first started, I was obviously going to focus on, I mean, obviously going to focus on agriculture, right? Because we're in the hill towns and we are, an, what, I don't know what we are, a post-agricultural community. <laughs> we're doing, the people are farming. There's a lot of people farming. Um, and people still relate to our sort of landscape as agricultural. Um, but in trying to understand, well, how do we support that? I was like looking at a lot of, you know, things happening in the Hudson Valley and I was like, God, so why do I have to drive to Columbia County to like learn about this idea of local agriculture or sort of, I mean, in some way it's kind of, um, it's, it's a, it's not, it's sort of inconvenient to package that way, I guess, but I was sort of like looking for something that was similar that felt the same way as the way people down in Columbia County or the Hudson Valley were, were talking about agriculture and in the hill towns. It was sort of there, but it was like, how do we, how do we make, the, how do we make it more real, I guess? Um, and, 
and in just sort of doing some background research and, and trying to collaborate with regional organizations, I was like, you know, the Hilltowns are like not, you go down to the Hudson Valley and it's like something is like fundamentally different. And it's like, well, cause they've got like five feet of topsoil. And I think that really like somehow like impacts people. <laughs> like you just assume you have soil and like, wow, that's, you know, that, that changes, I think. And the Hilltowns has a thin layer on karst right. topography, limestone, right? Yeah. That, yeah. Well, and, and that's, I think that's, it, it's actually quite uh, diverse because like around, around Thatcher Park and up in Knox, you, you have that, um, you know, if you go down into Burn and, and Rensselaerville, we don't have the karst topography, um, but we don't have any soil either. So, so it's just, you know, hilly and rocky and... And I even historically, I mean, farmers were, you know, okay, we cut all of our trees down and, and a lot of the topsoil may be washed away, but it was sort of this like ongoing struggle to, to like, you know, make a living on this, you know, hard scrabble agricultural landscape. Um, but that being said, there's like places around the world, countries and other parts who recognize that and they're like well this is a, a hill and mountain landscape and there's people who farm it and that's important even if it is hard and basically economically not viable <laughs> so i just thought that was really great it's like wow you know there's in in other parts of the world this is this exists as like a distinct type of agriculture um whereas here it's like well you don't have a lot you have crappy soil and you don't really contribute like a lot to kind of you're not like a, a major agricultural producer so you're kind of marginal like you know sure farm but like we're not, you're not really like you know worth investing in i mean and of course i'm just this is sort of the narrative i i tell myself yeah. <laughs> but um and i don't know so so i but as i got like talking to people about this they're like yeah you know like farmers who have maybe they're new farmers, maybe they're old farmers, maybe they're part-time farmers. They all like they all relate to that to the fact that we're in this high elevation terrain, and that um, a lot of you know the fields are being sort of are, are turning back into to old field and forest, and um, and they don't they don't know how to like they so they want to farm but they don't know really like okay well, well do I cut all my trees down again or do I like do I do something with agroforestry. Um, there's other people who are just really like, yeah, I ain't a flatlander. Like, I'm I'm a hill folk, and I wanna I wanna be a farmer. And um, it's part of their cultural yeah, identity. It's something. Yeah, that... and it, I think that sort of isn't highlighted enough. And I think it's a good, um, it's just a good way to like, you know, engage people because it, it engages them on an emotional level. Um, and so the idea was like, well, why don't we just have some kind of project or convening to, to get these people together and start thinking about how, how can we increase, you know, the utilization of this landscape in a way that's, you know, economically and environmentally sustainable. Um, what products can we grow that are suited to the landscape, um, that there is a market for that we can, you know, cultivate a market for locally or regionally. Um, what are some, you know, shared resources that we can develop to help, you know, maybe develop some regional products that are sort of just inherently, you know, Hilltown. Um, and yeah, so we sort of went through those sort of first few meetings talking about that. And we just decided this, we be a group of like a group of 15 farmers, mostly from Burn and Rensselaerville, um, at this point, but we just decided to 
that we needed to do an agricultural census. That's what, that's what we need to do a census. And I said, okay, well, let's just call it a survey. <laughs> and it's really like not a, it's really simple. And I probably, if I like revisited, I would ask a lot of different questions, but it's just like, who are you? Where are you located? What are you doing? You know, what are the three main issues that you face as a farmer in the Hilltowns? So um, what have you found are the main issues? Well, um, startup costs, the like basically the cost of operating a farm, whether it's like from getting started, uh, land, the infrastructure, um, or like sort of the overhead, you know, business costs of taxes and processing cost, you know, access to, inf- to processing infrastructure and the cost of, you know, getting, you know, your animals to a slaughterhouse um, seems to be kind of the the biggest. And then, then you've got sort of like a, a low, you know, profit margin. So your costs are high and then you're producing products in, in not necessarily the most efficient way because of the landscape sort of inherently limited. And then, and then it's like, okay, you're really kind of just squeezing out, you know. So you yourself are a farmer. Not really. Okay. I mean, I, I sort of, so well, just to back up a little bit. So the Cary Institute kind of, we, we went through this process and we decided that, you know, there's this group of farmers and we've kind of identified generally like what needs to happen. And um, so we sort of not to say that we think we've done, okay, that's it. That's all we're doing, but um, that it can kind of continue without our support. Cause, cause there's, you know, people who want to kind of take the lead. And also sometimes when you have, you know, organizational involvement, it changes the nature of the project. Um, it, you know, there, there, there become, you know, sort of economic, you know, financial needs to, to get a program funded when in reality, you know, this is something that can happen without having to get, you know, a grant. So the so, idea is there's a survey in place, some needs have been identified and the mm-hmm. farmers that are participating in it will kind of carry forward with trying to solve yeah, whatever Yeah, I haven't those... told them that yet. But I'm just interested in you personally, because you say yeah. you're sort of a farmer. What right. Does, like... So in that sort of like knowing, so we, um, I mean, I grew up in Rensselaerville. I don't, I don't have a background in farming at all, um, other than like working on a farm, picking rocks for a summer. Um, but you grew up in Rensselaerville. Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. So kind of as I got into the the craft beverage (laughs) component of, um, we, so I'm sort of involved in the project personally because I'm in the process of starting a farm cidery, um, in Rensselaerville on an old dairy farm. Um, and so it's like a combination of making, um, hard cider and, we don't know what yet, but grazing animals or something like that. <laughs> well, um, so this is a perfect segue into talking about that program. Right. So, and also it, it's a weird link, right? So because the hill towns, like if you drive around, I mean, there's all of these old apple orchards and some of them are linked to like kind of a farmhouse. Maybe they were planted and what is there sort of just like, you know, maybe old trees from that orchard or just sort of volunteers that, you know, grew up out of seeds. Um, And then there's some other kind of just like totally wild, um, you know, apple trees, but a lot of them, there's a lot. Um, And so recognizing that um, our 
group of partners were just like, well, we should be making cider out of these apples. And like, I mean, it, there's there's such a strong legacy of of cider production and, and apple production. And definitely in Rensselaerville, I haven't really like, I mean, I think everywhere because everyone made and drank hard cider um, in, in rural communities. But um, just in terms of what we've learned like about Rensselaerville, there's like a, there's a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, you know, used to press the apples and, and blankety blank would drive around and fill up our barrel in the basement and and we would drink it all year and then you would come back in and it was like you know that's not it wasn't that long ago that people were doing that and because they still remember it yeah and um and it's like you talk to it's so funny you, you you break out a cider press and press apples and make juice and everyone's like oh i have a tree in my land oh i've got some trees oh i have this old press in my basement and instantly just like people people engage in it and i think it's a really strong sort of um, sort of lowest common denominator, everyone relates to it in some way. And there's this great opportunity right now with, um, you know, the growing craft beverage sector to sort of turn that into, you know, a local economic sort of manufacturing opportunity. Um, so that's sort of what we're doing. Yeah, exciting. But tell us more about because I know we've covered a little in our paper some of the things you're doing with hops and with yep. beer and with that whole chain. Yeah. So 2012, Governor Cuomo passes the Farm Brewery Bill. So as of 2013, um, you had the first farm breweries coming online. Um, and that was a... Should I explain what that is? Yes. Okay. Yes, so, you should. <laughs> so the farm brewery bill is a special, a special type of license, um, very similar to the farm winery bill that was passed in 1978, and also the farm distillery bill, which was passed in 2008, which allows for small-scale production of hard, or well, in this case, beer, um, using a certain percentage of New York State ingredients. And if you have this license, it, it's the idea is that it's easier to get the license and you're afforded uh, more flexibility. So you can both produce the beer, distribute the beer, and sell the beer retail in within your premise. And that isn't allowed in any other um, type of... like. So if you're a microbrewery, you can't do that. If you're a production brewery, you can't do that. If you're a class A1 distillery, you can't do that. But this, this sort of the farm license allows you to do that. So there's... So it's like kind of this you know unit of production and, and sales which is really great but the deal is you have to use um, for the farm brewery you have to use 20% of hops by weight from New York State and 20% of all other ingredients um, by weight from New York State which predominantly results in grain or malt um, and that increases to 60% in 28 2019 technically um, and then to 90% in 2024. And the challenge is that we don't, we, we didn't grow a lot, any, really any <laughs> hops or grain in 2012 in New York State. I mean, some, but like really small amounts. So all of a sudden you've got all of these farm breweries coming online. And then meanwhile, you still have, you know, the farm, farm distillery bill had been in place for some, they have a 75% requirement and then farm wineries have a, um, like a 90% requirement, but there is a little different. There's also the farm cidery bill, which is 100% um, of apples from New York State. 
So it's a case where legislation is actually driving production. And yep. I know you said with the apples, it's kind of part of the culture. And it seems to me, we do this back in time column a hundred years ago, that hops used to really be yep. a part of the culture. So just tell us a little about what hops are. Sure. So hops are a... So the, if you look at the plant, the roots are a rhizome. And they sort of, if you look at like a plant that's a few years old, it's this you know, long bind that comes out and there's these really lush but sort of unpleasant feeling leaves and it's very bushy and then um, it grows very, very high. You have a trellis system to, to sort of that they grow up on. And then um, the actual hop cone is like this small, like flower basically, but it's all, there's, there's no flower. It's just a, like a little, um, I don't know what to compare it to. Like a, it's like a mini green pine cone or something like that. It's very it's mushy and, and you know, uh, and inside is the lupulin and that's the stuff that you smell that and it's like, oh, it smells like beer. And it's like a beer smells like hops. So it's, so, you know, hops give beer um, both, you know, aroma and, and bitterness. Um, and so the hill towns used to be kind of, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, we used to be the hop growing capital of New York state. And it's like, if you, it's interesting, if you look at sort of the trajectory of hops production, it kind of started, you know, in, in the kind of the Eastern part of, um, the state. And then they were like, realized that, well, actually it's really, it's easier to much better growing conditions, you know, 50 miles West. So let's, let's like, so basically kind of like made its way out to Western New York, um, and, I mean, there's definitely a, a history of hops production in Hilltowns, um, and people, yeah, people, I know, I mean, that's, it was a long time ago, but. So does this fit in at all with the last thing you were talking about, the farm, the kind of soil that's there? And, Not, I mean, could no. Could there be a resurgence of hops? No, because the Western New York had the richer soil. I mean, you can, there are people who are growing hops on a smaller scale, but mm -hmm. not, and it's like a, we, we tried that. It was like, well, can, you know, let's see if we can grow hops again. And, and some people are, and we sort of have helped, you know, people get started. Um, but it's, it's like not a, it's not an ideal, um, it's, a, it's not a hard, it, rather it is, a, it is a hard crop to grow. And if you don't have ideal growing conditions, um, it's sort of a, it makes it much harder. Um, or access to infrastructure and... So the Cary Institute's role in this is, is bringing together the different parts of production and farming and getting them to... Yeah, so we, we initially started, so the bill was passed and we were like, wow, here's a great opportunity to like explore grain production and hops production in the hill towns. Okay, so we did that and realized like, well, we don't really have ideal, like, you know, there, there are much, there are places around us that are better suited for that. But... Um, you know, small scale production is certainly viable. And um, there was a lot, was like, there was a, at that time, you know, there was this, all of a sudden everyone was like shifting focus to hops and small grains. And it was like, no one, there's no educational opportunities for farmers, um, you know, very few. There's no educational opportunities for brewers to really understand what it means to produce a beer using New York State ingredients. Um, so we, just started providing educational workshops and um, convenings of, of farmers and beverage producers to sort of help build that, that kind of connectivity. Um, and then we also started a brewery on our campus to sort of engage in our own local supply chain. Um, 
and engage our kind of local community in in the beer and you know kind of the the, the experience of drinking local locally grown beer. <laughs> um, and that evolved pretty quickly. You know, there's a lot of um, organizations around New York State. Cornell's has spent um, a number of years now um, researching hops production and grain production, sort of varietal um, varietal tests and um, and like breeding breeding different um, grain varieties in particular. Um, and Hartwick College is now has a grain lab. Or like a beverage lab on their campus. Um, the cooperative extension offices in sort of the eastern part of the state help with with education, and so there's a lot of a lot happening around the state. Um, and so we just try to you know continue to be a resource for beverage producers in the capital region. Um, you know ho- we host workshops on an annual basis. Um, we try to bring in you know people and and focus on topics that people want to learn about, or especially as like a small business who's in the first five years of production, you know, and, and operation and probably already looking at scaling up because that seems to be a trend with beverage producers that are, you know, within three years, they're ready to grow. Um, they're, they have like facing this sort of uncertain supply chain. They don't, you know, the ingredients are not necessarily the same as what they're used to when they're sourcing, say, from the West Coast and, and the, the consistency and the quality um, and the, the sort of the analytics, like the, the you know, how it, how that translates to beer, people are still sort of learning and experimenting. Um, and so we just try to help. Yeah, but what <laughs> that going. moment in time to be part of the... It the is really, growth. it's yeah. really interesting. It's kind of, um, and a lot of times people are, you find, see people who get very frustrated and it's like, you know, just still, still pretty early here. Like, don't, you know, like it's, it's, you should talk about it because that's something so that you know we can internalize that and then you know we have farmers who get frustrated because maybe they've grown a crop and and someone said oh yeah yeah i'll buy it and then come time to sell it and it's like oh well you know actually i don't need it um and i don't think that happens i don't know how often that happens but that's like for example i've heard that before and so it's like hey beverage producers if you you really want farmers to invest in this you need to like commit and demonstrate your commitment and um so yeah, but we're sort of, I guess, the, in general, basically helping to develop the supply chain um, and, and making it viable. Um, yeah, one that we covered, there were just such diverse people in the room, you know? Mm-hmm. It's to have a businessman sitting next to a farmer and trying to get people all to work together towards the same goal. It is really it's, cool. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if that's a unique instance within, like... Um, kind of the local food movement. Um, if there's other, you know, sort of inter- like case studies that kind of display similar qualities, but it's um. Yeah. Uh, well, another initiative that I'd love to hear more about is the clean energy communities. If you could just tell us a bit about that, especially with the national federal government news of late, <laughs> it seems particularly important. So. That part of the, in terms of when we, as we were developing the sustainable communities program, um, one thing we wanted to hone in on was sort of community scale, sort of community level and not even sort of sub-municipal, not necessarily having to engage, you know, your municipal government. What can communities do? Um, 
you know, in this effort to, you know, to be more sustainable, to be more climate resilient. And so we just did a little pilot with our own hamlet of Rentslerville um, and kind of hosted a series of meetings to talk about, you know, what would, uh, if you were to define like a sustainable Rentslerville, what would that look like? And so, so we, um, went through that process and, and kind of documented it. And so what would it look like? <laughs> Just a few details. Yeah, so, because, I mean, I think every, everyone's asking, what can I do mm-hmm. when you feel like the federal structure for moving forward is, is disintegrating? It's yeah. really important to, yeah. So, I mean, people, food, everyone likes to talk about growing food and eating more local food. Um, and, uh, so, like affordability is something that we struggle with in Rensselaerville. So there's you know young people who want, and this isn't sort of I guess particular to the hamlet of Rensselaerville, um, but young people who want to stay there but who can't afford to buy a house and or like the balance of not wanting to drive to Albany <laughs> to to get it to work mm-hmm. and you know wanting to to live in Rensselaerville. Um, so that that was something we talked about. Um, there is a, a sort of like infrastructure and like the longevity of infrastructure. So you know we have housing stock and um, even just even like natural infrastructure and how can we utilize that in a way that you know preserves it, sort of preservation through use and um, and what else kind of. Um, I tried to like really push this. So there's all these incentives for solar, right? And that's mm-hmm. kind of where the clean energy communities can, things come in. And I, I really tried to like push that in front of the group. Like, well, what do you think about, you know, sort of community solar or, or some kind of solar campaign? And people were like, well, you know, the incentive is there, but um, it would be, you know, the the environmental impact of, say, getting... 20 people to not have to drive to Albany because they can work locally would be much, you know, like more valuable than if we all put solar panels on our house and still drive to Albany. So there's sort of this like, to the extent that local energy production would create jobs that people don't have to like commute to work, Mm -hmm. that's great. But to the extent that it's just like replacing our energy usage with renewable sources, is like okay, that's okay, but like it, it's just it's it's sort of we have to I don't know I have like this little diagram that helps <laughs> explain it, but it was a really I don't know I I was sort of like intrigued by that because I mean not that I hadn't thought of it, but um, you know it's like we it's easy to incentivize solar, but it's much harder to you know to find you know to to, to find jobs for twenty young people locally in a rural community. Even if, you know, even though the impact would be... Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's something all rural communities are facing. Mm -hmm. And Rensselaerville is just such a physically beautiful place. It might seem more acute there, Mm -hmm. you know, because the desire to live there would be so strong. But the things that fostered the building of the community in the first place, the mill, you know, they're not there anymore. So Mm -hmm. what, like, what is the solution? I mean, how do you... Yeah, well, so the, we, I don't know. <laughs> um, and that's kind of where 
In terms of the, the sustainable communities program, we're sort of trying to transition more into looking at that problem. So local rural economic development that contributes to sustainability and climate resiliency. Um, and, you know, kind of learning from our, our pilot with Rensselaerville, sort of how can we, how can we expand that and, and, um, and actually try to, you know, come up with solutions and share those solutions. Um, but the clean energy communities thing came in because, so this is, clean energy communities is a program that it was created by NYSERDA and to, to incentivize. And that's the New York State yes. Energy Research and Development Authority. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and the, it's a, you know, <clears throat> a, there's money behind it, which is cool. Um, and, but it requires municipal participation, which that's kind of, I don't know where I have like a, so, you, you know, within the Hamlet of Rensselaer, for example, we have a group of people who are really like active and engaged and, and it doesn't really matter if they're interested unless the town board is interested. But it, so I'm always kind is of, is there a disconnect there? Not necessarily. Okay. It's just, it's like the, their priorities may be different. And for any small community, that's the case where it's like, you have limited resources, you have limited human resources at the t- municipal level. And so of all the things you're going to focus on, um, you know, like this program might sound great, but it's like in reality, the process of, of working through like the town of Knox and having to, you know, they, they got so far and then all of a sudden, like, you know, and not to say they, they won't persevere and find a way to, to make it work that but everyone ha- what, is happy with. Uh, what you're talking about here is the idea that one town board member was very proactive and went through a nice sort of program mm-hmm. in order to get a $100,000 grant for green initiatives. And the last action item was an electric vehicle um, charging, charging station. station that um, she had also secured a grant for, and the town board didn't second her motion. So that stopped it from that pathway anyway. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's like, you know how the, and their the process they went through you know that's that's you know kind of one <clears throat> example of how you could do it um and the, but then there's sort of like this race component like well the sooner you know incentivize like you know if you can do it sooner you you have access to more money mm-hmm. and it's like okay well the communities that have the capacity to really you know get themselves set up um are, are more likely to have access to that money. Meanwhile, like, you know, if, for the town of Rensselaerville, it's like we could probably spend two years just deciding that, okay, well, let's let's go down this path, you know? And it's like, but maybe, like, going down that path, you know, it's just, I don't know, the... the, the just I always just have a problem with, like, the idea of setting it up as, like, this competition or race when, you know, it's going to support communities that are in a better position to participate in that sure. race where well, other communities probably wealthier yeah. communities that have right. people on staff that can do yeah. those kinds of applications and so how how would you like so then i'm just like well forget that program <laughs> like, what else can we do i know how, how else can we pursue these you know this idea or whatever goals we might have without having to to go through that process um, or how do you get you know nicer to, to maybe recognize that leadership development and and you know more sort of comprehensive um, facilitation or sort of you know visioning is is you know or community engagement is important um, and not just the well if you get these four things done like great like 
hurry, hurry off and do it. And I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just, this is how I perceive it. No, and the that- race <laughs> component, I think, is kind of how Knox ended up in the debacle it did because mm-hmm. um, there was this urgency to get it done and maybe not consensus on um, what was most important. And what you're doing mm-hmm. is starting from the ground up and trying to listen to people and build consensus, which is a very mm-hmm. labor-intensive and time-consuming process. Yeah. But it seems like you would end up with a more solid foundation. Right. Um, Maybe. But what you're going to build on the foundation <laughs> is the question that remains. Right. Yeah. So so the, the clean energy event we hosted was, was with um, the Capital District Regional Planning Commission. Uh, Robin Reynolds came out and talked about the NYSERDA's program. And then Amy Picorni from the town of Knox came in and talked about their process and experience, you know, participating in the program thus far. And it was really like, there were a lot of people, you know, a good, a good number of people from the hamlet of Rensselaerville who were like, ah, oh, this is like really interesting. You know, it's a great opportunity, but how does it really, you know, is this something that we could use to further our sort of vision of sustainability? And it was sort of like, it, it was really kind of presented the dichotomy of like, like helping people see the difference between like a municipal community initiative versus like a, you know, a group of residents sort of aggregating their, their interest to, to move something along. Um, so that was a, yeah, well, what's been interesting to me in this discussion, which I hadn't anticipated is you have one example of state legislation, um, with the breweries that is actually driving economic change and helping a community in process. And then you have another example with the NYSERDA initiative, mm-hmm. where it seems, I mean, Rensselaerville is unique because it has you and people like you with the Carey Institute mm-hmm. right there willing to kind of jump in and, and do these very skilled uh, consensus building mm-hmm. seminars, but most communities right. don't have that. So it's great to have the push, but how how do you get over that, you know, that hump of the you know, the disconnect, Mm -hmm. which is what happened, I think, in Knox, where um, at least the crowd that showed up at the town board meeting that night were um, almost angry about the idea of um, an electric vehicle charging (laughs) station. You know, there wasn't a sense that the townspeople had gotten on board with that. Yeah, Um, Yeah, well, um, it's like... And even just drawing from the sort of the craft beverage legislation and how that unfolded as an example, like, well, maybe the way the program is structured could, you know, be different and, and, you know, engage different stakeholders and, and not like, you know, not, if you don't have municipal engagement, you can't participate. Like, I think that's a real problem and you can spend you could spend a whole year trying to get your town board to support something and meanwhile well you could have just gone and done it a different way and and maybe had the same result yeah (laughs) or or in terms of you know engaging people who you know in the process and not necessarily you know trying to get your five elected officials to to vote a certain way um i don't know well, we're That's well over our half-hour mark, but I feel like there's so much unsaid. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with people about yourself or your work or the Cary Institute? Um, I don't know. 
know, feel free to, you know, have thoughts, ideas, criticisms. Always happy to hear from people. <laughs> so don't be shy. Um, and definitely interested in, in trying to, you know, engage people in other parts of the hill towns and, and you know, in, in particular with the, you know, the farming stuff. And so, and the brewery, come on into the brewery. Well, that's great, <laughs> and thank you for coming. And people can listen to this and other podcasts just by going to our website, altamontenterprise.com. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks for having me.